the resurrected Jesus. So take your Bible and turn to Revelation 14. It's a very interesting chapter. Revelation 14. And it's part of a section, chapters 12, 13, and half of chapter 14, that make up an interval in the narrative of the storyline of the book. And by that, I mean that's sort of a, a lull in the story. And in scholarly circles, we, when you write a paper and you want to go off on a tangent for a little bit, you call it an excursus. You ever see the word excursus, you know they're going to go off on some tangent. So this is what's happening is that uh, John has been writing the Revelation and telling us, uh, giving us a narrative of things that are going to happen. And now he's going to stop for a moment and he's going to just focus on some of those characters that he's mentioned. Doesn't move the story along, but it does fill out the story, if you will. And in chapter 12, we saw uh, one of the major characters in the Revelation, which was a woman clothed with, with the sun. And under her feet was the moon, and encircling her head was the stars. And this woman is symbolic or represents the people of God. And then in that same chapter, we saw a dragon that fire came out of his mouth, who was cast out of heaven, if you can imagine such a thing. What a symbol that is. A dragon? A dragon? Now think about a dragon in heaven. And he's thrown down. He wants to flap his wings when he came in. In this symbol, and it, the dragon represents the devil. And uh, Satan is waging war against the woman, against the people of God. And then in chapter 13, we saw two beasts. Uh, the first beast represents the Roman Empire, uh, the most powerful governmental force in the history of the world up until that point, and personified by the emperor of Rome. And then the second beast in chapter 13 represented the religion of Rome, the cult of the empire. And that's personified by an individual later on in chapter 16, identified as the false prophet. And the government and the religion uh, in the Roman Empire went hand in hand. You could not separate them. There was no such thing as separation of church and state. And the government and its religion controlled everything, controlled the people, even to the point of determining how they lived economically. Unless you worshipped the emperor, emperor worship, uh, you could not... Uh, John says there'd come a day when you could not buy or sell. And he was warning seven churches, people who lived in his time about this, that this is what they could expect happening on earth. And uh, so he calls the people of God of his time to be faithful, uh, even to the point of death, no matter what it costs. And that's the call that we have. So look at chapter 14 and verse 1. He said, then, in his vision, the next thing that unfolds in his vision is this. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb, we know who the lamb is, that's the slain Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, which in this case is the heavenly Jerusalem. Because he's now having a vision of heaven, and here he sees this lamb. The lamb was introduced earlier on in the book as the Messiah who was slain and resurrected. And then he says this, and with him were 144,000 individuals having his father's name 
written on their foreheads. In other words, they have not taken the mark of the beast. Remember last week we talked about on the hand and on the forehead and what that meant? These were people who did not, were not loyal to the beast, not loyal to the empire and its religion, but have been loyal to the Father of Jesus Christ. They have his mark. Uh, we don't know what the mark is. It could mean that they've been baptized. It could mean they have the Holy Spirit, the seal of the Holy Spirit. Mainly it simply means, uh, obviously they don't have a mark, do they? A literal mark? No. So it means something else. It means that they are marked for God. That they're loyal to God. So he sees these people also in the New Jerusalem, or the Heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, along with the slain and resurrected Jesus Christ. Which probably means these people themselves are resurrected in the vision. We don't know that for certain, but that's indeed a possibility. Now, um, when the events in this vision take place, we don't know. All we know is they take place in the future. Do they take place in the near future? Do they take place in the distant future? John doesn't tell that. He just says, this is something I see in my vision. I see the resurrected Jesus, the Lamb, and I see these 144,000 who haven't taken the mark of the beast. Okay? And now... Not only does he see something, he hears something. So look at verse 2. He says, And I heard a voice from heaven, not identified, but at this point, I heard a voice from heaven. And now he tells us what the voice was like. It was like the voice of many waters. What do you think that means? It was loud. That's what it means. Watch this. It was like the voice of the loud thunder. What does that mean? Get your attention, doesn't it? Notice the words like. You see that? These are similes. These are his way of trying to describe what he heard. This loud, thunderous voice that grabs your attention. And then he says this at the end of verse 2. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their Harps. This voice was accompanied, whatever the, we don't know what the voice was saying yet, but it was a discernible voice, and the voice was accompanied with music. So what do you think those voices are doing? Oh, they're singing with musical accompaniment. Now, who are the people with the harps, by the way? If you look at chapter 15, the next chapter... And you look at verse 2, he says, I saw something like a sea of glass, notice the word like there again, mingled with fire, and those who have the, who have the victory over the beast, they've not submitted to the Roman Empire or its religion, over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. Look at this. Having what? Hearts. Do you see that? having harps. And look what they're doing, verse 3. They're singing. you see that? Now that's similar to what you see in chapter 14. So in verse 2 he says he hears these voices and then he hears the sound of harps. And look at verse 3 of chapter 14. What are they doing? Singing. Look, they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the Four living creatures and the elders, which we saw back in chapter 5. 
this new song, which was first mentioned in chapter 5, is the song of redemption. Uh, it's very similar to the song that Israel sang when it was delivered from Pharaoh in Egypt. The sweet song of salvation that Moses led back in Exodus 15, where all the people come out and they've been redeemed from the tyrant Pharaoh. And they sing this song of redemption. And here he sees a similar scene in his mind's eye in this vision. Uh, all these voices singing a new song. And they were singing before, before living creatures and the elders. And no one, it says in verse 3, could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed, look at this, from the earth. They've been taken from the earth. This is the heavenly thing. Been taken out of the earth. The implication is that, is that they've died for their faith. And now they're in the heavenly Jerusalem, and guess what they're doing? They're singing. And it says no one could learn this song except, you see that? Except the 144,000. Some says, some translation, no one was able to sing the song except the 144,000. Don't have the ability. Only the redeemed can sing this song. It's a song of redemption. And now he identifies these people who can sing the song, this, this heavenly group. It's a very exclusive song for an exclusive group of people. Who are these? These are the ones, verse 4, who were, meaning when they lived on earth, were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now what in the world is he talking about? A choir of 144,000 who were not defiled by women who were virgins? Now, if you take this literally, instead of symbolically, you have a problem. That means you got 144,000 people who never had sex when they were on earth. And the 144,000 have to be what gender? Male. Male. Only men. That doesn't make sense. Because the 144,000 represents the people of God. So what does it mean that they were not defiled with women, for they are virgins? Is it talking about literal adultery? No, it's talking about spiritual adultery. In the Old Testament, to follow a false religion, and the gods of a false empire like the gods of Babylon or Assyria or Egypt was to commit spiritual adultery. And God commanded his people. He said, you are my wife. Men and women. Don't commit spiritual adultery with the gods. Don't bow down to the idols. Don't make sacrifices to them. And so what he is saying is, these people have remained faithful to God. They are the bride of Christ, and they have not defiled themselves with all the false uh, religions that are out there in the Roman Empire. Now, there could be a physical aspect of this, because in Rome, many of the Roman temples were uh, manned, if not a good word, but were... Uh, led by temple prostitutes, temple priestess. 
and there was a sexual element in that. But uh, I think the point is not that it's physical. The point is that they have not adulterated themselves with the gods of the Roman Empire. And then look what he says in verse 4, in the middle of verse 4. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. In other words, they have not followed Caesar. They have followed the Lamb. A literal Lamb? No, not a literal Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Christ. They followed Christ wherever he goes. Where did Christ go, by the way? Well, we know he walked for three years on the dusty roads of Palestine, but where did he ultimately go? To the cross. And then to heaven. And these are people who have been so loyal to Christ that they followed him all the way to the cross and they get rewarded. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, carry that cross, and what? Follow me. These are people who have followed Christ. They've been loyal to Christ. So this is what John is seeing in his vision. He's telling you this story in symbolic form, and you have to figure it all out. Now the third thing he says in verse 4 is this. These were redeemed from among men. They were ransomed from the earth. He's taken them from the earth through his redemption. So we know that they have been transferred now into heaven. Whether this means they've died and their souls are in heaven, or he's looking at a resurrection scene, we're not certain on that, but we know that they have been redeemed, they've been purchased, they've been ransomed from amongst the, out of the world. And then he describes them right at the end of verse 4 as this, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. This is just the first wave is just the first way to end up in heaven because they've not bowed the knee to Caesar and they have followed Christ no matter what the cost throughout history there have been many waves of people that have followed this path and that's the path that we're called to follow not an easy path but and we just happen to be very fortunate don't we that each one of us was either born in the United States of America or happened to be here right now where we have relative freedom. Because that's not the way it is with most people in the world. Why in the world did God place us right here? We'll never figure it out. But that's just God's doing. I think He's given us a privileged position. And maybe we have this privileged position to be advocates for Christians around the world who don't have this. And but we are we haven't been we're not part of that first fruits. These people were the ones who made it to heaven because they were slain for their faith. And guess what? They're not crying that they died. They're having a great celebration. It's so loud. He says, "This is a noisy place." When I looked at heaven, it was a noisy place. You could hear singing that sounded like thunder. I mean, you can hear thunder for miles, can't you? This is a very this is a celebration of uh, of being redeemed, and these are the people who've been loyal to Christ and not to the emperor. Now, at this point, I think I need to say a word about what emperor worship was like. Uh, this is something that sort of most 
Bible teachers really don't understand because they haven't understood, the, they haven't really gotten back and read the, the history books of the Roman Empire written by people that were there when it happened. But, uh, there was a cult called the Cult of the Emperor. It was the religion of the Roman Empire. It was a civic religion. Civic religion means that everybody in society embraces it. They nod to it. And it was started when Augustus became Caesar. Remember Julius Caesar died? Remember who killed Julius? Brutus, right? Remember Brutus? You ate too, Brutus? You killed? You're doing this too? Brutus, in a sense, was to Caesar what Judas was to Christ. And he turns on Julius Caesar and he kills him. And there's a, uh, a law in leadership. There's a vacuum in leadership in the Roman Empire. And over time, Julius Caesar's nephew, Augustus, whom he adopted as his son, uh, was made the new Caesar. And when he was made the new Caesar, he took the title August, Augustus. He's not only Caesar, and you know the word Caesar means king from which the Germans get the word Kaiser. Caesar, Kaiser, means king. It's not his name. Augustus Caesar's first name was not Augustus, and his last name was not Caesar. Caesar was his title. King. Just like Christ is not Jesus' last name. Did you know that? Joseph, Joseph and Mary's last name was not Christ. It wasn't Joseph Christ. Mary Christ. Christ is Jesus' title. It means Messiah, King. So, Augustus was king. The adjective describing what kind of king he was, was Augustus. He was better than any king. Higher than the normal king. His real name was Octavian. You know, that doesn't quite... What has power for gasoline? Something like that. But... So his real name was Octavian, but so he took the title Augustus, King Augustus. And the Senate proclaimed him to be divine. The divine son of Jupiter. Jupiter's representative on earth. And a religion grew up around this known as the cult of the emperor. And if you could do it, you had to worship him as the emperor, I mean as God. Now, some people just couldn't do that, but they still had to sacrifice to him. They had to bow to him. They had to do a lot of show deference to him as some sort of representative of the divine. But in the eastern section of the empire, everybody worshipped him as God. The eastern section of the empire is Asia Minor, which is located, which is where the seven churches that John writes is located. Everyone in Asia Minor worshipped Caesar as God. In fact, there was a temple to Augustus Caesar where people went in and worshipped in the city of Pergamos. It was the first city in the Roman Empire to build a temple in honor of Caesar as God. And the second city in the Roman Empire, the entire Roman Empire was built in Sardis. 
Now, who's Paul, who is John writing to? Churches in Pergamos, churches in Sardis, churches in the eastern section of the Roman Empire. And guess what he's saying? Don't worship Caesar as God. Don't go to those meals. Don't make sacrifices to Caesar. If you do, that's the same as taking being marked for Caesar. Being loyal to Caesar. If you do that, you'll be able to eat. Caesar was the father of the fatherland. He made sure that all the citizens at least could get a bite to eat. But if you weren't loyal to him, you were cut off and you couldn't buy yourself. John says that's going to happen. Now, it hadn't happened at the point that he wrote this, but he said expect it to happen in the near future. And so what John is doing is he's warning these churches, these people in these churches, to overcome the temptation to compromise. Because... You know, it's very easy to compromise and say, well, if my family's livelihood depends on it, if it means the difference between my little child, my infant getting milk and not getting milk, I'll go make a sacrifice to Caesar. He says, if you do that, you'll lose your soul. And you'll see how he says that. So you need to understand that. And without understanding, you don't see it in the text. But everybody who read the text in the first century, that's, they understood it. You didn't have to say it out loud. Why? Because you were living it. But 2,000 years later, we read it, and we don't read it in that context, and therefore we miss the real message. We don't understand it, because we don't understand the context. So that's what's happening. Now look at verse 5. And in their mouth was found... No deceit. This is the people of God who have now in the presence of Christ. For they are without fault before the throne of God. Uh, they are blameless before the throne of God. Notice it says there's no deceit. Now, here's what deceit is. Deceit is when I say, Jesus is Lord in my heart. In my heart, I really believe. But, in order to get milk for the baby, guess what I do? Go make the sacrifice. That's the seed. You can't serve two masters. And God is the one who looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And it says these people, there was no deceit. What you saw is what you got. They were loyal to Christ even to the point of death. And therefore, it says at the end of verse 5, they were blameless. They were without fault before the throne of God. Now, Rome found fault in them, didn't it? Yeah, Rome said, you won't. You're not, wor you're not worshiping Caesar. You're not sacrificing Caesar. You're at fault. We find you guilty. Death. But guess what? God declares them not guilty. Blameless. Justified. He raises them. So these are people who remain totally loyal to God and uh, said Jesus is Lord. They said it out loud. They said it in their heart. They meant it. No deceit whatsoever. Now we come to the second paragraph in chapter 14. And we are introduced to three angels and their messages. Let's look at the second section. Look at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. What does he mean another angel? 
Here's angel number one, and he describes angel number one as another angel. The last angel we saw in the book of Revelation was Michael the archangel. Remember that? Now, he doesn't identify this angel, but this is a different angel. Not Michael. Unidentified. In the midst of heaven. Not here on earth. So it means this angel, in a sense, is in somewhere in the atmosphere, in his vision, in his vision, having the everlasting gospel. So when he looks in the, when he's in his in his vision, he sees an angel with the gospel. He calls it the everlasting gospel. It means it's an unchangeable gospel. The same message that John heard when he. In his whole life, his whole 90 years of living, the same message he preached in his vision, he hears the angel preaching that same message. So it's an unchanging message. And then he says this. He had the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. It's not only an unchanging gospel, Notice it's a universal gospel. Now when he says every tribe, tongue, people, nation, guess what he's describing? Describing the Roman Empire. See, the Roman Empire was made up of people of all kinds of tongues, all kinds of nations. Rome would just go into a nation, take it over. And now you're no longer your nation, now you're Rome. (laughs) You're part of the Roman Empire. So he's saying that he sees in his vision this angel with the unchanging message getting the gospel out to the entire Roman Empire. And then he says, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. Fear God and give glory to Him. Notice that loud voice. It means it is a voice that can be heard. He preaches it to everybody and he preaches it in such a way that they can hear it and understand it. There is no one John said there will be no one in the Roman Empire in the near future when he's writing that will ever be able to say we never heard the gospel. God intended for every person in the Roman Empire to hear the gospel. Even in the capital city itself, Rome. Does Paul end up in Rome? Yes. Does Caesar hear the gospel himself? The highest kingly God there is on earth? Yes, because Paul stands before Caesar and gives a defense of himself. Even Caesar himself hears the gospel. Wouldn't you like every head of every nation in this world to hear the gospel once? God determined that even Caesar himself would never be able to say, I've never heard that. Now, how could anyone get into the palace and speak to the king? I can't go into the White House and speak to the President. I can't get there and talk to him personally. I can't go into Buckingham Palace and talk to Queen Elizabeth, preach the gospel. Well, Rome had a system, that, an appeal system, a court system, that if you were a citizen, you could keep appealing your case. All the way beyond the Supreme Court to the king himself. And Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. And one day Paul stood before Caesar, and guess what he did? preach the gospel to him. Even Caesar got to hear the gospel. So, here we see in this picture, this everlasting angel uh, saying, fear God. 
Why fear God? Who did most people fear? Caesar. Give glory to God. Who did most people give glory to? Caesar. Don't worship Caesar. Don't worship the dragon. You know? And look what he said. Why should you fear God and give glory to God? Look in the middle of verse 7. For the hour of his judgment has come. And uh, notice that in his vision he sees that happening in the near future. The hour of his judgment has come. In fact, when Christ died on the cross, judgment had already been settled. And he's saying, therefore, you need to fear God because if you don't fear God and you don't give him glory, guess what you're going to face? Judgment. Who's he speaking to? Church members. Church members. Isn't that scary? Not speaking to the pagans out there. Fear God and give him glory because judgment's coming, you sinner. He's writing to the church members. Because if they don't fear God, they will fear Caesar. And if they don't give God glory, they will give Caesar glory. And they will bow down and worship Caesar or give him the sacrifice. And guess what those church members will face? Judgment. Proves that they are really not loyal to Christ. They're church members, but they're not members of God's family. And then he says this in verse 7. Right toward the end. And worship him, that's God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Don't worship Caesar, don't worship the dragon, worship the creator God. He's the one who made it all, he controls it all, and it's for our benefit. He even gives springs of water, he gives us water that we drink. He is the father that we are to follow. And then we now come to the next angel, verse 8. And another angel followed. So he sees this one in his vision. He sees one angel flying, preaching the gospel. Next he sees another angel following. And he said, oh, let's look at his message. The message of the second angel, verse 8. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And there's that relationship that we talk about, that spiritual adultery that we saw back in verse 4. Uh, he calls uh, worshiping the beast and getting involved with her uh, as fornication. So, I want you to notice several things here. First of all, I want you to notice that Babylon, Babylon is fallen. Babylon's a code word for Rome. Okay? Rome. Peter uses the same code word in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, it's a way to talk about Rome and not mention the word Rome. Babylon itself was gone, you know, in 530-some B.C. He's not talking about that Babylon. So Babylon here represents Rome. It's a code word. And it represents all oppressive systems. Every oppressive system throughout history, we can call it Babylon. It's very similar to the ancient Babylon. Notice in verse 8, it's fallen. That means it's judged. Fallen means it's been judged. Okay? Notice the word fallen is mentioned twice. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, it's repeated. Not only is the first, does the first beast fall, the government fall, but the second beast, the Roman 
Religious system falls. It's judged. Both are judged. It's fallen. It's fallen. And when you get to chapter 17 and 18, you'll see how the first, the government falls, and then third, in chapter 18, you'll see how the religion falls. Notice it is future. Even though it looks present. Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. Doesn't that seem present? Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. It's actually future. Rome is stronger than it's ever been when he writes this book. This is a vision, remember. In the future, in the, in the vision he sees it fallen. But the vision is taking place in the future. Rome is thriving right now. And yet he says this powerful system that people fear and will bow the knee to isn't as strong as they think it is. It's not to be feared. Just like that. And there's a contrast here. Babylon has fallen. Wait a second. Jerusalem has has fallen. Not Babylon. If anybody has fallen, it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, 25 years before this was written. The guy doesn't say Jerusalem's fallen. What does he say? Babylon's fallen. So he's showing a contrast. People say, oh, if we don't worship the beast, he might come and do what he did to Jerusalem. He might do that to our churches. Don't worry about that. God's going to take care of this. And the reason that Babylon or the Roman Empire has fallen in the vision is because, right at the end of verse 8, she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The word wrath there is actually the Greek word for passion. Rome has demanded that all nations drink of the passion of her fornication. Get involved with the spiritual adultery. So, that's the message, the second angel's message. So the first angel's message is good news, fear God, give him glory. Because judgment's coming. The second angel's message is Babylon's fallen. Don't worry about anything. Now we come to the third angel's message. Look at verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on their forehead or on their hand, he himself shall also drink of the wrath or the passion of God, which is poured out full strength in the, into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name. In other words, this is a certainty. This is severe. If you bow down to the empire and to the emperor, you're going to be punished severely. Remember, he's writing to church members. <laughs> it's not the kind of message we usually hear to church members. We always hear, grace, grace. Yeah, there's grace. 
But if you decide to turn your back on Christ as Lord and proclaim Caesar as Lord, the only thing for you is judgment. And he's not talking about, oh, you know, you're going to have your rewards taken away. He's talking about going to hell. Doesn't that sound like hell? Fire and brimstone, forever and ever tormented. <laughs> That's what happens to those who are deceitful who say Christ in one breath and Caesar in the other breath. This is a warning to the churches not to compromise or else. This is the reward you'll get. Now notice where the punishment takes place. Look where the punishment takes place. Where the fire and brimstone is. Tormented. You see that in the end of verse 10? Tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. You'll actually be able to see Christ when you're being tormented. What a thought that is. To realize there's the one who could just save you just like that, but you'll never be saved. Because you rejected him on earth and denied him on earth. He says, I will deny you before my angels in heaven. And so what a torment that would be to see the very one who could have saved you but just looking at you and saying, well, I never knew him. I never knew her. All because you chose temporal comfort. A drink of water, a bite of food. Traded your heritage for a pot of soup. Like Esau. So, while we are separated from Christ, Christ will still be in our sight for all those who end up in torment with smoke and sulfur, and he's trying to give you the worst picture of eternal torment that he can. Now he applies this. Now watch verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. That's mentioned back in 1217. Those that overcome are those who keep the commandments of God and keep the testimony of Jesus Christ. The 144,000 which are the people of God in heaven are those who have kept the commandments of God been obedient to God and the faith of Christ. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So here are those people who have trusted and obeyed, and they were patient. It says, here's the patience. Here's the endurance of the saints. That's what you have to have is endurance. You say, I don't think I can take it anymore. Just take it. There are two outcomes. We have a choice. One outcome in the presence of God, one outcome in the sight of God, but being tormented. And he's writing this to the church people. And then he says this in verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed, and here's what he's supposed to write. Next scene in his vision. Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on. Get, 
just start expecting it. He said, it's going to happen from now on. Punishment, the judgment, the persecution, it's all going to come. He doesn't tell us who said this. It's just the voice from heaven. He doesn't give us an identification of the voice. But he says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now wait a second. We don't usually think of martyrdom as a blessing, do we? Blessed are they who die in the Lord, meaning Caesar's put them to death. We don't consider martyrdom a, a blessing, do we? Don't we usually think it's tra a tragedy? That person's life was cut off at such a young age. They only lived to be 25, 30, and they were martyred for their faith. Isn't that a tragedy? No more tragedy than Jesus dying at 33 for his faith, is it? Would you say Jesus being cut off at 33 was a tragedy? It was a blessing, wasn't it? A blessing in the sky. And so, we shouldn't feel like it's a tragedy. We should see it as a blessing. And then he says this. Look what he says. Blessed are they who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. There's a divine confirmation. I don't know who the voice was that said it, but I know one thing. The Spirit said amen to it. You see that? Yes, said the Spirit. Amen. And here's why it's a blessing. That they may rest. Here's the goal of the blessing. The nature of the blessing. That they may rest from their labors, their weariness of having to navigate the system and trying to be faithful to the Lord. Those days are over. And their works or their deeds follow them. In other words, you will be rewarded for your faithfulness. You will be rewarded for living for Christ. Your efforts are not going unnoticed right now. God notices your efforts. He notices your weariness. He notices your faith. It's duly being recognized and one day it's going to be rewarded. And this is a message, first of all, for John 7 churches. Because the persecution is coming. But it's a message for all ages. It's a message for us because we have no idea what's going on right now, is it? There's persecution going on right now. And there are people around the world who are Christians living, let's say, in Muslim nations or in atheistic nations. Or in nations where there are dictators who have no religion whatsoever. They couldn't care less about religion. Or they're animists and you have some tribal leader, but it's a dictatorship. This is a message for those Christians living in those circumstances. It's a message for us. We need to be diligent. We need to maintain our faithfulness to Christ. There's a choice to be made. Let's don't trade our inheritance for a bold pottage. Let's remain faithful to Christ. Amen? We'll pick up verse 14 next week. Father, we